Nathan Apfel, thanks so much for jumping on the podcast with me this morning. Jason Rogers, thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think it was a couple months ago I, I called you up. We were just chatting, and I was like, hey, I'm going to do this podcast called Fresh Courage with Jason Rogers and just really want to uh, highlight people that have done some really cool things in their life and that are working on cool projects that could inspire people, um, that people could take that fresh courage and apply it to their own life. So here we are today. Um, we've got a lot to talk about and, um, I know you're working on some really, really cool projects and we'll, we'll jump into that, um, at some point. But what I really want to start with Nate is how, how you got into the work you're in. Um, what inspired you to get into film? Um, what inspired you to, um, to get into to storytelling? right? Um, for the listeners here, let me back up. Um, Nathan Apfel is, um, a producer. Um, he's, uh, filmed a lot on site with, uh, the action sports industry for several years. Um, worked into doing some documentaries. Um, some have done really well, um, on, on some of our favorite channels, right? Netflix, Amazon, and, um, now working on, a documentary series called the religion business. So, um, thank you so much for jumping on. Yeah. Th thanks for having me. I don't know if I would be called, I would call myself courageous, but, uh, <laughs> I think I'm just, I don't want to say stupid enough, but I'm just adventurous enough that I just like to kind of fall forward yep. into things, so to speak. Um, and so that's kind of, if I had to encapsulate my career in a nutshell, it's just like, I, when there's an opportunity, I jump at it. And sometimes those opportunities, are epic failures and sometimes they're, <laughs> they're pretty decent successes. And so that's, that's, I, I would argue that's my life's mantra is I just fall forward, fall forward and fail forward. I feel like that's kind of my deal is fail forward. What's that saying? Uh, fail forward, uh, fast and, uh, fail often and, and fast or something like that. I'm butchering it obviously, but absolutely. So let's, let's talk about how you jumped into, um, film and, and, in storytelling and yeah. being that creative mind, where did that start out for you, Nate? I, I, I've always been one to like poke the bear, so to speak. You know, <laughs> my parents would say I'm one of six kids and, and I was always the one that was getting into the trouble. I was always the one just questioning everything about my surroundings. And, uh, I, w I didn't get into film. I wouldn't call myself creative, but when I was 16, I had a massive head injury in Mexico. So mm -hmm. I was life flighted from Mexico um, up to Scripps in San Diego. My yep. grandpa had to hire a private plane from Arizona to fly down and pick up his, his dying grandson. Um, I had a grand mal seizure. I basically fell off a 40 foot cliff oh. and I had a grand mal seizure and my back was hyperextended. And, um, yeah, so they picked me up, they flew me back. Uh, I lost my driver's license and I was basically, you know, I had EKGs where they shove those little needles into your brain to read your brain waves to see if you're all right. And I don't, I don't know if I'm all right. Holy you gotta ask my friends. And what family. were you doing to fall off of a 40 foot cliff? I was on a quad. Okay. And my little brother was on the back and I used to jump BMX bikes and like do tricks and ride moto and stuff. And so I just saw this little windswept dune, this lip, and I was... Like I said, fail forward and I yep. just pinned it in third gear right off of it and there was just no back. Oof. And so it was a windswept dune and so I went to chuck the quad and I knocked my brother off of it, mm. luckily. And uh, and then I just kind of went down with the quad 40 feet. And, wow. Um, so I guess I am creative because my mom was sitting there and she always carried her camera around. And so she was just taking photos of her son dying in the sand. You know, we, my mom has oh my <laughs> photos God. of it all. But um, 
So I got back to San Diego and I don't remember two weeks of my life. Wow. Um, and then they pushed me out in a wheelchair and they're like, your son's a walking miracle. Wow. Um, and yeah, I lost my license. I couldn't surf. I couldn't ride bikes anymore. Cause when you hit your head that hard, they're like, don't hit it again. Yep. Um, and so I picked up a little video camera and I started filming my friend surfing and that's how it all started out there in San Diego County. Yep. Right. What yep. was your favorite break down there? Uh, oof. I lived on Tamarack. Okay. It's definitely not the best way. Yeah, but it's not, but that low tide little reef knuckle, it gets really fun if you know it. There's a couple guys out there that know it. And that's, we have uh, a lot of good sessions there. Awesome. But, yeah. Um, I, I miss just morning surfs. That's yeah. one thing about living up in this area, Utah, is those morning surfs. Yeah. So you got the camera jumping in the water. You're filming your friends. Yeah. So I kind of went from, again, like I fail forward. And I when I sniff opportunities, I just throw everything I have at it. And yep. sometimes that's a little dangerous. It's definitely not a safe way to live life. Um, but a director was directing. So I, I was shooting and editing my own content for a couple years. Um, and this is like well before I'm talking these little tiny digital cameras. Yeah. I went to college and I, I was still studying film, like actual print film and 35 yep. millimeter film. I was the last real class to graduate using film and negatives. And so it was fun for me cause I got to taste both worlds. But, um, when I was 18, a buddy of mine was like, Hey, I, we need some help on a, on a surf movie. And he worked for Oakley, the sunglass company. Yep. And I ended up, um, editing like the behind the scenes for the DVD. Okay. And nobody cool. uses DVDs anymore, but I, I Hey, we do. <laughs> <laughs> so I edited, uh, I edited all the behind the scenes footage of the DVD and the film premiered. Um, and there was some edits that Oakley wanted and the editor had already flown home. Yep. So the director was like, Hey, do you want to come in and edit this stuff? And I'm like, sure. Again, fail forward. And then my next five years were probably, were just a blur. He took me on Burton snowboard films to Europe. And, um, and then I was, I started editing a TV show on Fox and uh, an action sports show on Fox. And it took me all over the world, Peru, wow. Australia, New Zealand, Argentina. I just went everywhere with that production team. And, and so my early twenties for like, I would say seven, five to seven years were just, I was lived on the road Wow! and I just cut my teeth in the field and you know, I would edit, I would shoot, I'd direct whatever put someone put in front of me. And yeah, I woke up and I was 24 and we had won two Emmys and wow. um, yeah, it was just a crazy, like just crazy crash course in filmmaking. Yep. And I would, I would consider it more like avant-garde, like just, I had no structure to what I was doing. Right. And so um, in my mid twenties, we started I moved to uh, Manhattan beach with a buddy of mine and then we wanted to make a narrative feature, which was a whole other, <laughs> a whole other story. But so then I started getting into the actual like structured version of filmmaking and that's where it got really fun. Um, and, and it, I just realized I knew nothing in regards to narrative or, right. or episodic TV. Um, and yeah, again, I just, I make the most of any situation and now I'm in my late thirties and I've worked on, you know, global TV shows and, and feature films and, and I've just been really blessed to have all those opportunities. And some of them, like I said, were epic failures and some were mediocre successes. <laughs> so. Absolutely. How do you now in, in your mid thirties, um, decide, okay, I've done this stuff. I've, I've, I've done the surf, the action sports. I've done the, doing some of these shows that you mentioned, right. Mm -hmm. Um, on some of the major networks and you've done some of these other, you know, documentaries, at, at what point now do you decide, uh, I want to do something a little bit more meaningful? Like what, 
take me down that journey. How does that, um, how do you decide at this stage in your life what you want to work on? I didn't decide anything. <laughs> Talk um, to us about that. I think, <clears throat> like I said, I'm, I don't, th the, the head injury probably set up a lot of my career to be honest, because I don't have much of a memory. Um, like short term memory I don't have. Mm -hmm. So if you asked me what I did yesterday, I could not write it down on a piece of paper. Um, but I believe that I'm kind of guided through life mm -hmm. and through my twenties, I never thought I wanted to get married. Never thought I wanted to have kids. And in my early thirties, I did what most men do and I got a woman pregnant and, um, and I wanted all of, for some reason I was like, I want, well, not for some reason, my upbringing taught me that, you know, abortion is, is not a good thing. And so I, um, I was very adamant that I wanted this child to live and I thought it was going to be this beautiful, strong boy. And we didn't, we didn't want to figure out the sex and then boom, out popped this little firecracker of a girl. <laughs> and, um, it's her it took your whole heart. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that she, she radically transformed my life, like radically. Um, uh, as soon as I saw her, I'm not a crier. I don't, I'm not much, I'm not an emotional guy. And as soon as I saw my daughter, I just started weeping, mm. like, like weeping. And I couldn't even control it. And the nurse was like, do you want to hold your daughter? And just that, like, just that overwhelming experience, like shattered everything for me. It shattered how I use my resources. It shattered where I pour my energy. It shattered my idea of, um, what I want in life and the idea of selfishness and, and it fully transformed me as a person. And not granted, it didn't happen overnight, but as I saw her grow from an infant to a toddler, I realized like the content I'm making is strictly entertainment and I am not like, right. what am I doing with my life? Right. Um, I've been given amazing resources from, you know, I have tons of camera packages and lighting packages and I have all these resources that could be utilized to create a better world for my daughter. Wow. And so that, I think that. That revelation, I would say, was like four or five years ago. Yep. And then everything just, like, like I said, I just it takes a lot to shift that mentality. Right. Um, so I would say right now, I'm 39. Like this is the first time in my life where I've, you'd call it God or our Creator or Mother Nature, whoever, whatever you believe in, but whatever that is, steered me to this very moment and this show and this app, it wasn't me. I'm not smart enough to do that. So that's why I'm here. That's incredible. Yeah. You mentioned something in that, um, that the way you were brought up, yeah. the way that you were brought up resonated and, and taught you. And it was true to you that you needed to step up yeah. and that you needed to take on responsibility. You needed to be a father. You needed to be a dad. Yeah. What, how important was that upbringing to you? Well, my upbringing, I was raised in a not like the classic California non-denominational megachurch, you know, mm -hmm. 5,000 people. I sang in choir till I was in junior high. You know, my parents were this quintessential perfect couple to the public. Yep. You know, they had six kids. Um, and so, yeah, my, my, my faith foundation that I was raised in is it, it affects everything in my life. You know, but like I said, I, I poke holes in everything yep. and I question everything and I question and it could, you could call it pride or whatever, but I just don't like to be told something. I, I, I have to learn it the hard way. Right. So if my dad told me not to jump off the quad, that quad off that sand dune, You're I was going to do it because I want to see what happens. And I almost died because of it, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> that's the way I live my life. So, but my faith or that structure, that, that moral 
compass of Christianity has huge implications for my life. Right. And no matter how far I ran away from it, which I was running through my twenties and thirties as far away from it as I could, um, because of like, we can go through some really heavy situations in life, but I was running from it, but it's intentionally or unintentionally. Do you think looking back now, 50 fit, probably, probably intentionally. Okay. You know, and, and we can get into why, but it's like, I think, yeah, the, the, the teeth of my faith that the teeth never leaves you. Right, you know, right. it's like if you're, if you read the Bible and you know the Bible, it's like the word of God is imprinted or the, the word is imprinted on man's heart. And so it's like, if you, if you believe in that word that's imprinted there and, and like God doesn't want to let you go, you know, right. or your creator doesn't want to let you go. So those teeth are in there. <laughs> They're that's sunk. Right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So let's jump into this latest project. Yeah. Um, the religion business. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you shared, the the structure of what you wanted it to be um Mm -hmm. with me over a conversation i think several months ago Mm -hmm. and you're like i just i feel like this this needs to happen Mm -hmm. and um and here you are Mm -hmm. you're doing it so share with our listeners and our our viewers here what what are you working on what is the religion business and what is your goal yeah so about 10 years ago i had this idea so in my late 20s and it, the idea came from a bunch of experiences that I'd had, and I won't get into details. Um, but you know, a youth pastor of mine who was kind of my mentor ended up raping his adopted children, and I was like, "How could a guy like this mm. be like even in authority in the church?" Mm. And then a, a very good friend of mine passed away, and he was a pastor who built of a, a, a very successful church, and the church literally just shunned his family as soon as he had passed away. And, and, and then my brother-in-law, who's, who's a pastor, he's dying of a, a rare genetic disease. And he, like, when you say, when you meet a person and you're like, that person is like the most, just uh, when you, the image of Christ, yep. kind and loving and gentle and like an amazing father. And then how could a loving creator go into this young man's life and just tear him to shreds physically and emo- mm. mentally and everything. And have him like give him a death sentence. Mm-hmm. I, so these, I had these really powerful moments in my life where, um, it, it made me angry in regards to like the idea of a loving creator or a loving God. Um, and then I would look at the church and I'm like, you guys are nothing like you say you are the mm. institutional church. Mm. And, uh, and so when I was, I think 27, I was like, I'm making this show called the religion business. It's going to be a two hour documentary and it is going to burn the institutional church down. And that was like my full, like fire, like I was fired up. Oh yeah. But I was like, I was young. I hadn't, I wasn't a father. I didn't understand what a loving father is. Yep. I didn't understand what, um, like faith is, so to speak. And so we shot the whole show. Really? Yeah. I self-funded it. We shot the whole show. Um, when, when was this? Probably 12 years, 10 years, 10 years ago. Okay. Years so ago. this is, this is new. Okay. Yeah. So I shot the whole thing. Interesting. And a bunch of stuff happened on while we were shooting that like made me fully just, I was not stoked on the, the direction of it. Okay. And I started looking at the footage and I just was looking at me in it. And I was like, man, I'm just like this angry kind of bitter person Wow. who's just screaming at a wall. Basically there was no direction to it. You know, it's like, I just wanted to find the problems. Yeah and point out these glaring problems that I, or I saw as glaring problems. And that, yeah. and I just wanted to do that. So I went through all the footage and it took me about a year and I just didn't like it. So I put it on a, an L, a bunch of LTO tape in my safe and I'm like, yeah, it's just going to sit there. Yeah. 
And then, um, let me, let me pause you right there. How yeah. many of those kinds of shows have we all seen though? For sure. Or it's like, yeah, you watch this show or this documentary, this series, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you're intrigued by the title mm-hmm. and then you watch. And at the end you're like, I, I, what yeah. did I just watch? Well, it was just kind of empty. Yeah. Documentaries are like one of two things, especially with faith-based or religious-based documentaries. It's either a cheerleading film mm-hmm. or it's a completely like lambasting negative attack. Totally. Very rarely do like, let's say the, uh, if you're faith, if you're religious and you want to make a documentary about religion, very rarely do you turn the camera on your own religion and on say, yourself. what are we doing good? And what are we doing bad? Right. And then the opposite of that, very rarely does someone who, want to attack a faith or religion, take an actual unbiased lens Same. and say, okay, what are they, what doing, are they doing good? good? And so, um, that's where I think God or my creator or whatever you want to call it needed to get me to is he, he needed to get me through these really tough trials through having, through having a child, seeing how selfish I was as a man to like raising a, a child to realizing I'm, I can make change in this world. Um, and so to go back to the show, I shelved it. Um, and about two years ago, I just woke up one morning and I'm like, I'm ready. I need to readjust. I need to reapproach the show. Um, and, uh, and I didn't rush out like I did on the first one to start filming. I just sat and I started sketching down my thoughts and my ideas. And I realized that I can't tell the story because like I said, I'm not, I'm not smart enough. Like I fail forward. That's what <laughs> I do. So I was like, okay, I think I'm, I know what, what I'm good at and my strength is just stepping on that next stone that's put in front of me. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going, yeah. but I'm going to step on that next stone. And so my first interview was, I just started cold calling professors. Um, and I, I cold called a guy named Carl Truman and Carl Truman's a reformation thought expert, um, brilliant author, professor. Um, and I showed up we shot an interview with him. And I mean like the questions I was asking him when I go back and look at the tape now, I just laugh <laughs> because I knew nothing about what I was talking about. Right. But he was kind and he, and I saw him as like someone who could step me through the history of Christianity. Yep. And, uh, and so it's just, that's been the show I've, I've called Carl and then Carl says, you need to go talk to this person. And then this person says, you need to go talk to that person. And what started as a two hour documentary is turned into a seven show episodic. So almost seven hours of content, um, mainly from, from an editorial perspective, you know, we started cutting it and our first cut was three and a half hours. And that was before we were still shooting. Yeah. And so one of my mentors in LA, he's like, is everything gold? And I'm like, everything is gold. platinum. Yeah. So he's like, <laughs> don't throw it away. He's like, just turn it into an episodic because if you think your viewers need to need to hear everything, yeah. um, they need to hear it. And, and over the last year and a half, I realized the only way to properly tell the story is I have to unpack really 3,500 years of history. Yep. And so if I was doing a documentary on, let's say Apple, I have to unpack 50 years of history. Right. If I was doing a documentary on Amazon, 35 years of history. Right. I'm unpacking a system and an institution that's 3,500 years old. And so to do it properly, it just takes time. Sure. And so that's where it's turned into a seven show episodic. And, um, but then as we were shooting the show or as we, we'd been shooting the show, I realized this might become the greatest tool ever to point out the structural problems in the in Western religion in general. Right. Um, and so I said, shoot, I'm actually onto something like really heavy. 
And I said, I don't just want to point out a problem. And so you don't want to just point out a problem and be like, you just talked about those, those documentaries where you just have that. Okay. I just, there's no, there's no solution. Mm -hmm. So you, you found a place where you're like, I want to actually do something about this. Correct. And so like, I, like, like I said, like I'm, I see myself as bringing the most brilliant minds in theology, in science, in philosophy from all over the world. Like I got to sit with professors at Oxford and professors at Berkeley and University of San Francisco and Notre Dame. And I mean like just brilliant, brilliant minds. And I realized I'm the glue that's just bringing, bringing that. all these brilliant minds together. And I think the, the one that really was the nail in the coffin for me that we need to provide a solution was I got to sit down with the former chief counsel to the IRS for nonprofit and religious tax law and code. And we spent four hours and he walked me through every single law, every single code, like everything that has built Western religion to what it is. Yep. And through getting to sit down with these individuals, I realized there's a solution in here. Yeah. And it's not a governmental solution because we don't want the government involved right. with religion. And but they, but they they haven't proven themselves to be able to, <laughs> to <laughs> they definitely have not. To be able to be good yeah. stewards of our money, right? But there's yeah, exactly. But so there's there's actual quantifiable solutions baked into the system. And I've never made a piece of technology in my life. But um as soon as I saw the idea, I started sketching. And for the last six months, I've been, I knew, ex- I knew the exact problem I wanted to solve. And so I worked backwards and, uh, yeah, now we have a, a tech team working to develop what will become a global app, um, a, or a global piece of technology that religious institutions can implement, nonprofits can implement, donors can implement. And it's, it's, it's just bringing accountability and transparency into the system. I love it. So we're going to get really into the nitty gritty here, but what you're saying is you were so disillusioned as a, you know, in your mid twenties with so many things going on with what you saw in just in, in the greater church in general, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking Christian churches. Um, I'm a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. Um, that's where my faith has been um, grown. Mm-hmm. So I grew up, Yeah, but it's also where my, my faith has been tried mm-hmm. and where I've also grown mm-hmm. in my faith. Yeah, Your faith in a Christian non-denominational faith, um, you've gone through your peaks mm-hmm. and valleys as well. Yeah, And then you've, you got disillusioned. Mm-hmm. I feel like our generation, I'm 39 this year, I'm in a month. I feel like our generation got disillusioned mm-hmm. with religion because of some of the topics you mm-hmm. are bringing up. And the one of the major ones is where does the cash go? Mm-hmm. So talk to us about what you're exposing and what you're trying to solve with, with this project. Yeah. Well, I think project. The, the toughest part. So, so there's a lot of shows and a lot of podcasts and a lot of, you know, let's say public figures that talk about this but they never go to the root of the problem. Mm-hmm. And through my research, I realized I don't really care about theological differences. I don't really care about, um, you know, structural differences within your institution. Cause that's what most people like to debate. Totally. I want to go all the way to the base, to the foundation. And, and what I realized is to your point about our generation, our generation is really the first generation that's trying to reconcile the fallout of technology. And so when you look at the, the, the Western church, you say, okay, 
modernity and technology have collided with the institution of church. Mm. And so we're starting to see, because technology is available, more people can get information out, yep. right? We're starting to see the, um, the negative side of the church that we couldn't see. Right. You know, our parents couldn't see because right. everything was analog. You know, you could kind of keep certain, um, like, let's call them um, fraud cases or, or self, you know, or embezzlement cases. They would be localized. Well, now you hear about a pastor in Texas with 600 grand cash in his wall. That's a national story. Yeah. And so we're the first, we're, we're the first generation that's having to deal with the fallout of technology and modernity colliding. I'm sorry, technology, modernity, and institutions colliding. So you can look at the government. Look what's happening at the government right now. It's the same thing. It's an institution that's yep. colliding with technology. And the now, speed of information is yeah. happening so quickly that it's it's mm. hard for these these old institutions to catch up. Yeah. So you look at pharma. You can go down the list. Pharma, yeah. the military. Healthcare, I always complex. say. Healthcare. Like all of these like institutions 25, are being 30 rattled. Years behind. Yeah. And they're being rattled because they're realizing our, our dirty laundry is being aired. Mm-hmm. And it's a good thing, but it's painful for us and everybody involved because like, sure. who's usually the one getting the brunt that like the, the brunt side of that stick, the common man is, yeah. it's not the people running the institutions right now. It's the common right. man. And so that's what I've realized is I got to go all the way to the base, which is like to the foundation of religion or Western religion. And, and what are the problems there and how do you solve those problems? So, so let, that, let's go there. Take us, uh, take us, take us to the, take us to the base of, of that. You know, you said you've got to, you've got to take us all the way back to 3,500 years of history. Yeah. Well, this is a seven hour conversation, right? But so, you know, you, really let's like, you got to look at it is let's, let's, let's go back to the reformation. Okay. I don't want to go all the way back because the reform, if we go all the way back, we're going to be here all day, but the reformation Luther in those, those original Martin Luther, Martin Luther, John Calvin. Calvin. Yeah. Those original guys really started shattering the power paradigm of the Roman Catholic church. They protested, they protested, but they shattered like their protests ended up shattering the power that the Roman Catholic church held. Correct. Um, and, in a lot of, a lot of their weapon, like the, the Roman Catholic church owned, like basically owned the Bible, right? It was in Latin. Very few people could speak Latin. So the, the common man had to come to them. Right. And so it was kind of, it was this very uneven power hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what Luther and Calvin and Zwingli were like so passionate about, like bringing an end to, yep. um, well, not right away. It, it took, it took a hundred years to get there. But, uh, so but how was, much courage did it take for those guys to do what they did? Right. I mean, this to, is a great tie actually. What? I wouldn't call it courage. What drove Luther to nail or one of the big debates online right, right now is he didn't nail it. He glued it to the door. Right. And I'm like, who cares? Who cares? Like, he put it he on the door arguing about it. But, but so why did he put it on the door? Cause that those teeth of his creator were in him and he was tired of seeing what was going on. He was seeking the answers and the questions of his soul mm-hmm. that weren't being fulfilled, weren't mm-hmm. being answered for him. And in so an ex- with it, with like a very youthful, like excited mind, he right. wasn't like angry, which is what I was in my twenties. Right. He wasn't, f- f- well, he probably was, but like he did it in a way saying, Hey, these are my 95 issues right. I have. And, uh, and so Protestantism spun out of that mm-hmm. and Christianity really had this awakening of like the individual and it empowered the individual. Yep. 
And then you had all the, the initial translations of Tyndale and King James. And all of a sudden I could read the Bible in my language yep. and be stoked on it. And so Christianity was almost democratized at that point. Right. And for the next couple hundred years, of course, what happened with the Church of England, boom, the, you know, King James wanted power and, and it, it always comes down to power and money. Right. But so America was this new world frontier. And so everybody came over and the Baptists came over and, and, you know, the Quakers came over and they wanted to find freedom of their religion. Right. Not freedom of our religions, but they freedom, freedom of, of their theirs, religion. Of my own. Yeah. And so this is where America becomes this very amazing story. But so flash forward to 1913 in um, tax exemption. So, so there's about 12,000 nonprofits in the U.S., including churches at this point. And the government's trying to figure out income tax. And so they create the tax codes that are almost the benchmark for today still. Okay. And so this is where you have to go to the foundation in regards to going to 1913? the foundation. 1913. And some of those are still... Mm -hmm intact today. Yep. And they did a revision in the 1970s, but it wasn't over the whole code. Right. And so that's, what's funny is you have 20th century. This is the biggest one. You have 20th century laws and regulations trying to corral a 21st century techno driven beast. Right. And you just, you can't do it. Sure. And so that's what the show is about is it goes down to that. It go, boils all the way down to the tax code and to the idea of tax exemption. And therein lies for good, bad, or indifferent, the linchpin to in the entire Western nonprofit world. And when I say nonprofits, religious organizations are included in that. So in, in 1913, there was 12,000 nonprofits. Mm -hmm. Today there's 1.8 million. And so those wow. 1.8 million, which generates 5.6% of the GDP of America's GDP, 10% of America's population is employed by nonprofits. With those nonprofits, and maybe you do or don't know this, but what percentage of those nonprofits are churches about 400,000. Wow. So this is, you, you got to watch the show for this part, but <clears throat> the, the IRS thinks there's 400,000 churches. Yeah. Because a church does not have to register with the IRS. That's what shows up on the record. That's what they see as like, we call them like avatars in the show. Okay. So like, cause the church does have to register with the state, but the state has no accountability to the IRS. So they don't have to tell the IRS how many churches are out there? Got it. So think of it as almost like these ghost churches where the IRS goes. So you have one, one, uh, let's say headquartered that is registered and then a bunch of. Uh, no, no, nothing's registered with the IRS. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know this and I didn't know this going into the show, but a church does not have to register with the IRS. Wow. So the IRS does not know you exist. Whoa. The state does okay. if you want if you want to file for tax exemption. Sure. So as a nonprofit, you have to file for tax exemption and you have to file with the state. Now, a religious organization, I'm sorry, a, a secular organization, like let's say um, something that like works with fresh water yeah. or, or the immigration crisis or whatever, they have to register with the IRS. They have right. to say, hey, here is what we are doing. We're a nonprofit that's working in this space. Right. But a church... Does Don't not have to. to register with the IRS. Interesting. So the IR and so here's the kicker. There's only two ways a business, because you work in business, I work in business. We are a fictitious entity. Like right. whether you're a S Corp or an LLC or a sole prop or a non-profit 501c3. Right. It's a made up thing. Right. That that we as humans have built to try to organize society. Right. So there's only two people that you need to communicate with, with this fictitious business. One is your state you're in and one mm -hmm. is the IRS. Right. But from an IRS perspective, a church does not have to talk to them. Interesting. So this is what's even crazier though. With the state, 
you're not fine. So with the IRS, you have to file a t your tax records. You have to say, hey, these are what we made. These are where our money went for, for profit or nonprofit. Right? right. Right. And so that's a legal document that anybody who has an issue with how you run your business can say, hey, I have an issue. I want to see those those documents. Right. So there's accountability there. Right. But a church does not have to file anything with the state or the IRS or the federal government in a legal document. So if you boil down to the bottom, there's no legal document, a definable document that says, how much have you raised? Where has it gone? So if there's no legal document that you can be held accountable to, what do you create? You create little pie charts and spreadsheets and you give it to your people and you say, hey, this is where our money is. But no one knows where the money is. Interesting. Because there's no legal paper trail. What are you... I know you're still in in the middle of working on this mm -hmm. project. What are you starting to find? Are you surprised by what you're finding? Are you overwhelmed? How is that? How's that process? And what are you finding? I'm sickened, to be honest. Um, so, religious individuals, especially American religious individuals, are the most generous people in the world. So my hats are off to to faithful individuals that give mm -hmm. because they give almost well they give 890 billion dollars a year let me rephrase that sorry globally christians give 890 billion american a christians year. a year give about 450 billion a year and so when you look at that number you say that's almost a trillion dollars a year that's 20 like three percent of the entire u.s tax revenues every year and donation in donation and that's just to churches. That's not including the nonprofits. And to nonprofits, we're talking about 1.42 trillion. And so you have, let's back up to churches again. So you have 890 billion sitting. And that is entirely held and, and stewarded by leader, leaders of churches and leaders of, of Christian religious organizations, whether that be the Roman Catholic Church, um, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, the LDS Church, like the, the leaders steward 890 billion wow. with no accountability. So there's no legal metrics for accountability. And so what we see is only six cents of every dollar given ever makes it outside the church walls now to create impact for people in need. And what I mean by that is you can say that's people who need to be saved, homeless, um, Orphans, roof over their head. Anything. At the end of the day, all we need, right, is food, clothing, roof over sure. our head, and knowing that someone loves us. So right? here's so. here's what's crazy. Six cents of every dollar makes it outside the church walls. It's about forty-seven billion a year. Guess how much is stolen by church staff? Literally, just people that work for the church reaching their hands into the coffers and pulling it out before that pool of money ever makes it to the bank to be deposited. How much? 53 billion oh. so more money is stolen so you're saying th those stories like the one mega church in houston that they found hundreds of yep. thousands in the in the air duct or something mm -hmm. like that that yep. is happening that's happening uh, on mass scale so 53 billion and the crazier part is that stat that 53 billion that's voluntarily given by churches so there's there's groups that go around and, and you know poll churches say how much money was stolen that 53 billion is voluntary data given by churches. So some of the pollsters think it's twice that, because no church wants to say we've we're we're getting we're getting we're getting crushed, scammed here, you <laughs> yeah. know. So so let's let's give it let's look at it as as face value and say okay, 53 billion is stolen. If that 53 billion was just not stolen, 
the Christian church could solve the top 15 global social issues with that 53 billion. With the stolen funds, with the just, stolen, the stolen just the stolen funds. funds. So that where, that's where it gets super fun is it's like, just think if churches better utilized and better stewarded resources, safeguarded their, the Christian church with their saying that they want to be the light of the world could literally be the light of the world tomorrow. And so that's, what's so cool is it's like, we expose the show is exposing some really big problems and we go all the way to the root of it. And we not only expose problems, but I have three investigation teams working on investigations mm-hmm. and we're expo- We're going to expose some of the worst players here in the U S wow. but then at the same time, we're also exposing the best players because we want to show that, that every coin has two sides. I love that. Um, and so, and then we, we get to work, we're working with some uh, development economists at the university of San Francisco and our goal with this. And then we're, we're hopefully going to be working with a think tank out of Copenhagen pretty soon. And the goal is to show that the Christian church could literally rad- radically transform the world overnight. You don't need to do anything else. You don't need to ask for more money. You don't need to demand it's there. more. It's, it's just there. there. You just got to be better stewards of your resources and bring some accountability into the system. Wow. That, that's, yeah. I mean, like you said, going down the rabbit holes you're going down, yeah. it can get to quote you sickening, right? Well, it's just gut wrenching when I think most people, um, want to see good in the world I, I and they that. want to be a part of that change. Right. They don't know where to look. And so this is the problem with technology. So right now, when you look at when I was talking about modernity and technology colliding with these institutions, most technology has been used either for bad and in like self basically self-dealing self-dealing or entertainment. And so I think that I think our generation and especially the generation below us is going to be this huge agent for change in regards to seeing technology for what it is and the, the negative side effects of it and saying, we need to leverage technology for good now. Absolutely. Um, and so but we're seeing it now hundred percent. And so that's where, what we're building our technology we're building is we're saying, we want to create a tool that can be used for good. That's totally outside of human control. So it's, a, it's, 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 it's AI. We have a team developing this artificial intelligence that no man touches. Once the, once the algorithm is built, it does its thing. And so that means like, I can't get my hands in there into the cookie jar yep. by, by, you know, the person who's going to take over, can't get their hand in. It's like, nope, it is what it is. And it's going to run. And then the coolest part is I was telling my business partner, I'm like, I can't wait in 10 or 15 years for a group of young kids to be like, eh, what Nathan and Chris did was pretty good, but we've got a way better version of it. You know, it's like, I can't wait for that You're generation. You're going to spark innovation within mm-hmm. this little niche. Ex- not, well, not little, not little. <laughs> trillion within dollar this, niche. Yeah. Within this big niche, right? Yeah. But look at what, I mean, it, it has to start, mm-hmm. right? We have to start having not just the conversations. Yeah. Conversations are, are worth nothing if we don't yeah. do anything with it. Yeah. Um, but it looks like, you're really trying to make that change. Well, it's like a mustard, you know, if you're biblical, if you like the Bible, the story of the mustard seed, but I, I always <clears throat> use the, the analogy of, um, so when people say, what's your goal with this show, Nathan? Yeah. And I'm like, look at, I'm not going to radically transform the religious land space, landscape, land space, landscape, landscape. <laughs> like we'll land go with landscape. But, um, so think of it as like, this is the trajectory of modern religion right now based yep. off of the 1913 tax codes and tax exemption. If I can just shift that trajectory for three or four degrees with accountability and transparency, you extrapolate that out over time and the church will be in a radically different spot. Yep. And so, cause that's how the church has gotten here. 
So that's what's cool about the show is when you look at Christ, you know, Christ is this pinprick. And then the, the, the early church with Paul and the apostles was kind of doing this. And then when the apostles died, the, the initial popes kind of took off and they kinked it a little bit. And then the Roman Catholic Church and then comes to America. And now it's non-denominationalism. It's, it's the mega church. We're, we're way over here. Totally. So it's how do we kind of reorient the religious landscape back to the original mission of back to their original mission, its original foundation. Well, and, and I, I love how you bring that up because ultimately when I look back at religious history, Christian religious history, hasn't the church, even when Christ himself was on the earth, hasn't it always been imperfect in some kind of way mm -hmm. because us humans yeah. are the ones who... who we, we are imperfect, mm -hmm. and, and we, therefore the structure we're trying to build is imperfect. And so, and then the greed, the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the self-dealing, yeah. that kind of stuff is the natural man that kind of creeps in, right? Um, I, I think of even Jesus himself was betrayed by two apostles mm -hmm. just within, you know, 24 hours of him yeah. dying. Yeah. And, and how corrupt did they did it have to be for you know for them to actually turn their back on the person they actually knew was mm -hmm. the savior of the world yeah so um i mean it's just so interesting to think about right and well, how a great example i always see like one of my tag like i i feel like my i like to dilute things down to the simplest literal comment because language is kind of a limiting communication tool but humans are going to human they That's are. my saying. It's like humans are going to human, no matter how good like your intentions are, no matter how, like how much I think this show is like a altruistic thing for me. I don't know what it is. And I'm like, I know, like I see the problem, but I'm still going to human. So it's how do I get out of my own way and how do I build safeguards into a system that won't let my human nature take over, totally. you know, and you can even like to your point about Christ on earth when, you know, whether you're a Christian or, or non-Christian, atheist, whatever, like there was this historical figure named Christ who radically transformed Rome and his early church radically transformed Rome. And it was because, I think it was because they were so em, like empowered by Christ's teachings that they actually, so here's a good story. The first orphanages in the world were started by these early Christian churches in Rome. The first universities hmm. were started by Christians. The first hospitals, there was no such thing as a hospital before Christians. Because once Christ came, he told you to love your neighbor, take in the widows and the orphans and the right. marginalized. You had to and so have the a place for that. These early Christians were like, well, I can't hold 10 of them in my house. Right. So let's build a little space. And what's mine is yours and what's mine is theirs. So I want to help these, these sick and needy. And then, oh, the orphans, which is funny, the word orphan, which we talk about in the show, wasn't even a word. It wasn't even in, in vocabulary back then. They used to call these children fatherless. And so the word orphan was actually a made up word, just like the word computer. A right. hundred years ago, the word computer wasn't around. So the word orphan or orphanage was not in the Latin and, and you know, in these languages. It didn't exist, just that child's fatherless. Yeah. And so the Christians actually transformed language. They transformed hospitals. They transformed, they built hospitals, universities. Um, and so the, the, that early Christian church radically transformed the world because they weren't bogged down necessarily by the weight of the institution, if that makes sense. Yep. And then when Constantine says he becomes a Christian and he basically sets the stage for 
Christianity become the official Roman Empire eventually. Then he starts funding the church. And, and that's where a really interesting discussion happens between historians is like, was that a good thing right. or a bad thing? Right. Because the Christian church went from being underground and this very, like, you know, even the word church. So let's say Christian Grass church. Roots. Well, the Christian church, so church comes from the word ecclesia, which literally meant gathering. Mm-hmm. And so the Christian gathering. So it was this gathering of people that had, didn't have buildings. They didn't have bands. They didn't have you know, money to do big things, but what they had, they stewarded well. And they, within 200 years, 10% of Rome was Christian. So that's like me dropping a hundred or 200 people off in LA, downtown Los Angeles and being like, Hey, I've got a pretty interesting story for you to tell. Go radically retransform LA. It 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 couldn't happen. Right. Unless it was like supernatural. Right. And so you had these 200 people kind of wandering around Rome and they radically transformed the epicenter of the world at that point. And it wasn't through what they were saying. It was through their actions. Right. And that's what's so cool is you look at this early church, they transformed Rome because they were literally acting out the message of Christ. Yep. So you've mentioned a couple of things that you've discovered, right? Which yeah. is the, the, the theft, right? That, mm-hmm. that happens and, and what, good could be done with, with those funds. If they were, um, better looked after, we were better stewards of those funds, having the transparency. Are you seeing, and, and this is where we're going to shine a little bit of light on my church that mm-hmm. I'm a part of. Um, we've been, you know, had, had a little bit of a hot topic over the last couple of years, right. Mm-hmm. Um, with, um, what, what the church has chosen to do with mm-hmm. their funds, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you're talking about Ensign Capital. I'm talking about Ensign Peak Advisors, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. um, so the the fund that mm-hmm. the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has mm-hmm. that has multiplied its its um, its its tithing account, mm-hmm. so to speak, right? Um, and I am not an official representative of the church. Mm -hmm. And so anything that I'm saying is, is essentially what I've, what I understand of the Mm -hmm. situation. Um, but we as a church have gotten a lot of criticism because we're, uh, the church has been accused of stockpiling Mm -hmm. funds. Yeah. And it makes people uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because the church has a lot of funds. Yeah. And, and so, what are you finding? Are you finding that other churches are also quote unquote stockpiling are the LDS stockpiling way more than anybody else? What are you seeing within kind of what your, your research? Well, so we need to go back to, again, we're going to go back to the foundation. Yeah. Because the LDS church and LDS individuals in general are really good with money and that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but so enzyme, is it enzyme? Enzyme. 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 enzyme As yeah. I understand it is basically they're an endowment fund and it's not against the law. And this is from my conversation with Philip Hackney because I talked, I asked him specifically about this. It's not against the law for a nonprofit to have an endowment fund. Right. But the difference is when you have to, you have to disclose with the SEC when you hit certain volume. So that was, I believe that was one problem is, is the Mormon church had more capital and then they, then they, they were allowed to have in these funds without disclosing it to the sec. Got it. This is the bigger kicker, which literally shocked me. 
when you see Enzyme as, as an endowment fund. So basically it's a hedge fund, it's an investment fund. Guess what it's registered as with the state? What? A church. An investment fund is registered on paper as, as, an, a, as, as an auxiliary an... to the LDS church, which means Enzyme, a hedge fund, does not have to declare anything to the IRS. So the IRS doesn't know how much they, money they have, how much their profits are, they know nothing. So this is where it gets into this really murky area right. of how can a hedge fund be registered as a church sure. with, the, with, with the state? I could see it be re being registered as a nonprofit with the state, and right. then it would have to report to report the IRS that. and say, hey, report we are gains. an investment fund, right. but uh, uh, an investment fund. So you walk into a building that says, you know, what did you call it? Par um, Enzyme, I called it Enzyme Capital, but what did you call it? Peak Advisors. Peak Advisors. Yeah. It's literally an advisory firm on how yeah. to invest money is registered as a church. There may be another Enzyme company. Yeah. That yeah. So that's, that's what's great. That's what, when you look at the system, you're like, humans are going to human. Totally. If I have the opportunity to start an endowment fund that has carte blanche free for all. Yeah. And I don't have to, I don't have no accountability to the IRS. I'm going to try to invest as much as I can into that fund. Right. But so that's where it's like, well, is the lack of accountability is it is it worth the squeeze, so to speak? Because you should the church should be the epitome of accountability and totally. transparency. Right? And to your point, humans are going to human. When you start to look at how can I play this game, so to speak, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. within the rules or the boundaries that have already yeah. been set, mm -hmm. even if the boundaries are not set properly, yeah, from 1913 to mm -hmm. 2023 or yeah. wherever we are. Um, the other, let's go back to kind of some, some biblical stuff here. So, um, Joseph, mm -hmm. um, in Genesis yep. where he was, um, kind of like an advisor, so to speak mm -hmm. to Pharaoh where, um, and very trusted. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm no biblical scholar, so, mm -hmm. but I know this story of, the seven years of, mm -hmm. of, of feast and the seven years of famine, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and, and there's been a lot of criticism of not just our church, but other churches in general mm -hmm. of you're making so much money, mm -hmm. you're not spending it all yeah. on what you, you know, mm -hmm. we're not spending it all. Everything you're getting, you're not spending everything. Yeah. And if we, if we take that lesson from, from Joseph of, when they were in feast, mm -hmm. he went to Pharaoh and said, there's going to be seven years of famine mm -hmm. and I'm stockpiling right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Our harvest, our, you know, mm -hmm. our, our, our herds, all of these things. And what happened? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what happened. They, they go, they went through a, a really bad phase of famine mm -hmm. and the people went to Joseph and they said, Oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm, I'm losing. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give me some food? Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. Here's, here's my herds. Mm -hmm. I'll trade that for some, some mm -hmm. food. They were prepared. Yeah. Right. How do we reconcile the ones that are doing it well, mm -hmm. which I, I would deem that's a, the way that Joseph taught us is the way we should be doing it. Mm -hmm. We're being good stewards Yeah. because we're preparing for a mm -hmm. bad, a bad winter, mm -hmm. so to speak. Right. Yeah. How do we reconcile, um, preparation? Mm-hmm. And potentially over preparation with mm -hmm. greed. I want to go back to one thing to your point before we tackle that. There are 
tons of churches, you know, non-denominational Baptists, Methodists, they're doing the exact same thing mm -hmm. that the LDS churches, the LDS church is not a, a singular outlier. Sure. They're just the one. biggest, the biggest, one of the biggest ones, you know, sure. well, the Roman Catholic church is the biggest, but yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, behind, you're, you're, you're a close second. And so, and then nonprofits are doing this same, same thing as well. We're, we're exposing a nonprofit that spends about 67 million bucks a year on what they say is their program. Yeah. And they have a billion dollars cash sitting. Yeah. And then they're still out raising money every year. So they generate about 300 million bucks a year in profit every year. Yeah. Most people think nonprofits can't be profitable. Uh -huh. Nonprofits can be extremely Pretty profitable. profitable. Yeah. They just can't. The, 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 the people who run those nonprofits are not supposed to stick their hand into that cookie jar. Yeah. So to speak, but there's but, no, there's no exit from a nonprofit for the founders to exactly, you but, know, but you 10 can, X. but you can have tens of billions of dollars sitting in cash. Yeah. At your disposal. Yeah. So to your point about Joseph, this gets into like some theological debates, which I'm, I don't. And, and, and I, I did not bring that up to mm -hmm. be in a theological debate. Here's, here's, here would be my rebuttal is when you look at the old Testament, especially the Torah, Jesus Christ wasn't there. They were living under mosaic laws, under strict law laws. And Joseph was a byproduct of that system. And so here's a problem that the show portrays as well. Mm. And in particular about tithing and the idea of giving to yeah, a church. Let's talk about that. Is uh, most pastors leverage Old Testament scripture, which has no application today. And, and that's, this isn't my opinion. This is, I've sat down with some of the most brilliant minds that speak ancient Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and are experts in the Mosaic law and the Bible. Mm -hmm. And, and they say most approaches to giving and tithing are not applicable. And, um, so basically churches are kind of bastardizing the, the old Testament law. Um, because that's just what they were, they were born into that. You know, they saw their pastors above them do it right. and no one's looked at it. There's one pastor in particular in Texas. His name's Creflo Dollar. Yeah. Or is he Texas or? Creflo I Dollar. I think he's Texas or he might be Georgia. But, um, but yeah, Creflo Dollar was standing on his megachurch stage once and said, if I believe in God to give me a $65 million jet, like I deserve that $65 million jet. The crazy part about his story is I don't know how much many years later, but he realized the way he was presenting the idea of tithing and giving was not biblical. Mm. And so he was on his stage and in humility, he said, I was wrong. Like the way I positioned giving and first fruits and tithing was not biblical. And it takes a lot for a man like him to humble himself, so to speak, and say that. <clears throat> um, and so like the, in the show, you're going to see a, a dean named David Croto who wrote his dissertation back in the day on the idea of tithing. Okay. And, um, and he dissects it and don't get me wrong. Christ is very particular about the idea of giving and helping, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it has no ties to the Mosaic law or the old Testament, which is where most churches preach from. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting perspective. Um, because you know, there are so many, you said, Christians are some of the most giving people. Mm -hmm. um, I forget the stat, but um, hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah, like 400 and something billion in the U.S. Christians give, and then globally they give about 890 billion. So American Christians give over 50% wow. of giving to the church, which is pretty incredible. So what are... 
what are your plans at this point? You're, you're creating this seven part docuseries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you launch it when we're probably going to launch it end of summer, 2024. It really comes down to, um, we have some really exciting marketing. We're going to, the way we're going to bring this to market is not your standard market because, or standard strategy, because I don't see it as a, you know, most shows you're like, Oh, I'm going to sell it to TV. It's going to air on TV for a couple of years or air on a streaming service. We're going to make our investment back plus some, and then we'll kind of let it stream for free and we'll let it peter out. This is totally different. So we're taking a, I don't want to, I'm not going to present it, but we're taking a whole 180 degree approach to marketing and distribution because my goal is eyeballs. I want this docuseries and our, and our technology to radically shake everybody's opinions and ideas of, of what religion is. And, and what's your, what's institutional your religion. institutional religion? Yeah. So is your goal to not only expose, but then through the exposure mm-hmm. to radically change that trajectory you talked about, there's like that little hinge, you, you change that two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, mm-hmm. then 15, 20 years down the road, we're in a different place. Mm-hmm. We're in a better place. Yeah. Not only, so what does a better place look like? If you're asking me, it means that we have our children decide to stay in the church. Mm -hmm. They decide to raise their children in the church. Mm -hmm. They decide to continue to give. They can, the, the programs within the churches that we're part of are giving back to us and Mm -hmm. we know what they're giving us. Yeah. We know what they're providing. The value is there and we're 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 not as reluctant perhaps as we are today mm-hmm. to give because we feel like we know there's a lot more transparency and when we've we've done the work mm-hmm. we're doing the 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 faith kind of testing work mm-hmm. right now well you got to ask the hard questions right it's like america has always been predominantly christian and so there's an interesting shift happening right now so religion in america has always been been seen as a net positive to culture and society in the world. So Americans have always said, the majority have said religion is a good thing. Yeah. Guess what? Today? That just switched. So less than I'm 50% not now see religion as a net positive. They see it as a net negative. And so if you take that idea and you put it on the generations below us, it's those kids that are frustrated with the institutional church. Yeah. It's, we are the first generation that raised our hands saying like, there's some issues here. And it's, it's no one person's fault or no one church's fault. It's, right. it's, it's just how everything was built. But so our goal is to, um, if we can inspire that younger generation, the, the Gen Z and below even, um, I think we have a huge chance at bringing accountability and transparency back into religious institutions, which will what? That will make people trust the system again. And here's a great story. So I was at this family vacation and... Um, my family is very, is religious. Mm-hmm. And so my aunt always says like, Nathan, you've been the type of guy who like pulls a, a pin on a grenade and you just toss it out there and you just and watch, watch the shockwave. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's kind of been my career. But so I'm old enough and wise, like why a little wiser, hopefully. And my goal is to manage the shockwave. And that's where my business partner really, he's, he's brilliant. He's, he's checks every box that I am not. Um, in regards to strategic and he brings a whole other skill set in regards to growth. And so his job is to manage that shockwave. 
And if we can manage the shockwave properly, we can radically transform the landscape. Because I want my daughter, when I think about my youth, like I was, I sang in choir. I went to Awanas. Yep. Like I, most of my childhood memories, like I kissed my first girl, like tucked into the pulpit, you know, yep. on the stage yeah. on a Wednesday night as my parents practiced worship, you know, totally. they sing. So it's like all these beautiful, fun memories of childhood are, are revolving around the church. So yeah. it's like, I want my daughter. Same with me to be raised in that. And so this is what's cool. So I'm sitting there at my family vacation. And I got my aunts and uncles sitting around and they're asking me about the project and they're asking me really hard questions. And um, I realized it's because they're nervous that I'm going to damage what they love and what they were raised in. Totally. And so I had two of my nephews sitting at the table, one's 18 and one's 16, and they were just quiet. And we talked for probably two hours and you know, they drilled me on the idea of giving and what would, what happens if leadership doesn't get paid and all this. And I could tell some of them went away, like kind of frustrated with the conversation. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I'm going to have a really uphill battle with people that are older than me in this, with the, presenting this argument. Right. Because they're kind of ingrained in that system. Right. Both my nephews, I did not ask them. They came up to me afterwards and said, uncle Nathan, I want to tell you, I'm excited to see the show in this piece of, in this app. They're like, this is really needed. And both these kids go to church. That's cool. And so they feel like they feel the problem and they feel God's or our creator's grip on their heart, but they can't put a finger on the problem. And so that is what we're, that is what I'm exposing is I want them to fall back in love with the church and understand the tr th that there needs to be accountability and trust in the system. And think if, think dude, you it, got me, you got me welling up, man. Think if I think the church awesome. was, so think of the church, which it could do tomorrow. It could end deaths from tuberculosis. It could end deaths from malaria. It could double the infant mortality rate. So 50% of children that are dying during childbirth and mothers would not die. It could stop gap um, world hunger and it could house every homeless person in the U.S. The church could do that tomorrow and it would not affect bottom lines, salaries, buildings or anything. So that's what's so crazy is it's wow. like we have not been good stewards of our resources. We have let authority dominate the church. And so, of course, religion in the U.S. is now a net negative. And the church, this is, what I, this is what boils my blood. All these pastors from their pulpits, they point out and they go, it's society, it's culture, it's all of this that's damaging the church. And I, and I say, you've never sat down and humbly turned the camera on yourselves and said, what are we doing wrong or what could we do better to solve this problem? Instead, they just point the finger at everybody else. Right. And so that's what the show is, is and, we're flipping that camera. We're flipping the camera, but yeah. then we're also to the end that your two nephews, mm -hmm. they came up to you and said, that's awesome what you're doing. This, this new generation is taking notice mm -hmm. and they're, they're going to be able to benefit from the hard work that's happening. Yeah. You know, I think we can all identify either ourselves mm -hmm. or people that we love yeah. that have left church because they're frustrated yeah. or because, you know, um, their faith was dwindled because of some kind of an experience that they had. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd like to wrap up with, with a thought here of the work that you're doing like you said, 10 years ago, you could have done from a very different lens. Mm -hmm. But now as a father, um, as a steward to her mm -hmm. and as a steward to, to really the project now 
um, you're really, I'm just so proud of you, man, for like doing it through that lens. It's, it's going to be so impactful and just thinking about it, sitting here with you. Um, I get chills, you know, it, it gets me emotional because I have family members. I have really dear friends that have left the church. Um, and they've left because they've been frustrated with topics like this very topic. And, and, and it's not that they're putting their faith in the things of human things, right? Mm -hmm. But when their faith is floundering, uh, floundering a bit, their faith in God, and then something like this hits, that's when we'll lose them. Mm -hmm. But if they're floundering and then we have real solutions to real problems Mm -hmm. and, and we're able to get to a better place. I am so confident that we're going to be making this world a better place for our children Mm -hmm. so that they can continue to focus on what matters is their creator, Mm -hmm. their relationship with God and and building up their own faith in their own families. Mm -hmm. So can I make two points real quick to, to conclude? So, um, when I first started the show, I was super pessimistic about the future of the church and the future of our youth. And I think a lot of adults, you know, and a lot of parents see this younger generation and they're just like, oh, they're just lost on their phones and they're just selfish and they don't want to raise families and America's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy to have that mindset. But statistically, Gen Z volunteers more hours than any other generation. And then they give it's it's Gen X that gives the most and then Gen Z. Gen Z, these kids donate more than us, than us millennials. And the reason is, is this is what's cool. They are the generation of social change. And this is where we have, like you and I are the final byproduct of that collision of technology and institution. They're the ones that are trying to figure, they're they're young and they're saying, how do we dig ourselves out of the the shit that our parents stuck us with? And that's what's cool is they are this generation that, but, but they have no direction right now. And this is the thing is they, they'll scream at a church. They'll string, they'll, they'll scream at um, police brutality because they don't know where to pour their energy. Right. And so that's what we want to do is we want to be this example of, Hey, we, with humility, you can turn the camera on yourself and you can ask really hard questions about what we did right, what we did wrong. And then the bigger one is bring them in to the table and say, how can we better this? for your generation, yep. not for the older guys that are, you know, falling off the map and not for us who are our hairs graying and, you know, right. getting a little older. It's for how can for we you. benefit you? And that like, I am a, I am so optimistic now because I've, I've found who I, who I need to talk to. It's that we found our voice with this generation that like they're frustrated, but they just don't know where to point it. And, and this, this is, I'm going to end with this, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a, a Muslim, whether you're an atheist or an agnostic, we all have faith and we put faith in something. And if you're, if you're an atheist, you're putting faith in atheism. If you're a Christian, you're putting faith in Christianity. And so the goal is how do we reinvigorate faith and reinvigorate dialogue with, with atheists, with the, more, uh, the Muslim community, with Jewish communities. Like that's the thing is we've lost communication and that's why faith is just deteriorating and in, on all fronts. Totally. It just reminds me of we're coming to that unity of the faith. This, mm-hmm. this could help us really get to that point. So yeah. 
Nathan, thank you so much. Jason, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Proud of what you're doing here with Fresh Courage. This is awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, you demonstrate it to the fullest. And so uh, (laughs) just really appreciate it. I'm just stupid enough to keep (laughs) falling forward, man. Hey, let's do it. I'll, um, we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep an eye out for the project, uh, the religion business, um, look out for, uh, the religion business on, uh, where you, where you stream and, uh, and the app. Yeah. The, yeah, the, both of those will launch, um, you know, late summer, early fall 2024, but we've got a lot of fun stuff that we're launching on our, on social. Um, we're basically just giving content away Cool. and we want, we want people to start discussing this topic. And so we're not hoarding our content. We're not hoarding our interviews. We're not waiting for the big release. It's like, nope, we want this to start circulating. So excellent. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jason.